Well, praise God. Um, so I'm just going to jump right in. Last week, um, I began sharing from 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, we were talking about a living hope. And uh, we're currently, right now, reading through the book of 1 Peter as a church. Last week, we talked about the living hope that we have in Jesus. And did you hear that even in our worship this morning? My hope's in Jesus. So I just want to give you just a quick kind of recap or a refresher from last week because I shared some really important stuff that I think is going to help us grow uh, hope. It's going to help us grow in our living hope. And if you remember, I shared some uh, definitions by Steve Backlund, who leads uh, Igniting Hope Ministry. And he defines hope as the belief uh, that the future will be better than the present, and I have the power to make so. Another definition of hope is the overall, overall optimistic attitude about the future based on the goodness and promises of God. And he also talks about how there are no hopeless circumstances, only hopeless people. And if something's going to change, someone has to have hope. And the person with the most hope has the most influence. And we know that this is a absolute, hope is absolutely a foundational uh, part of the kingdom of God. Because 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I also shared that hope is a sign of emotional health and a prosperous soul. And then I shared about how faith and hope are different. You remember that? Faith is specific. It, it targets itself on, on a specific thing, whereas hope is a general thing. Faith says to the mountain of coronavirus, you know, you be cast into the sea. Or hope says, even if it doesn't happen, we're going to thrive, right? You know, faith says, I'm going to get married by this age or by this time on the calendar. Hope says, even if I don't get married, when I want to, I'm going to thrive. Right? Faith says, I'm going to live uh, this very specific prophetic promise about my life. I'm going I'm to live out this prophetic calling, these words that have been spoken over me. And hope says, even if those things do not come to pass, my life is going to thrive. You can actually be a faith person and yet have no hope. I mean, remember I said that if we are a faith person without hope, we end up getting devastated when things don't happen the way we thought they were. But when we're hope people, hope is a safety net for when what we believe for in faith does not happen. So if we have faith without hope, we are a people with limited options. But people with hope, they have a lot of options. And so then I kind of got into the, the letter of Peter, and I got into the background of this letter from the apostle Peter. Who, who remembers what he's the apostle of? Oh, my goodness. He's the apostle of <laughs> hope! Hope! <laughs> 
It's not hard, people. It's not a <laughs> he's called the apostle of hope because of this letter that he's written. First Peter uh, and Second Peter. He is so encouraging to these people who are suffering because he's writing to Christians in uh, the Roman uh, provinces of northern Asia Minor, and they were suffering incredibly for their faith. And we know they were suffering because Peter talks about it all throughout the letter. I hope you're picking that up as you're reading the book of First Peter. He's hit suffering, the suffering you're doing, the suffering you're enduring. And then I talked about how Peter didn't start his letter with, you know, the circumstances. He's not like, oh, here's the problem I know you're facing. Nor did he begin by talking about how they should handle themselves, how they should conduct themselves. No, he begins his letter with blessing God, which is a very common Jewish practice that was performed in the temple. And so when Peter starts his letter with blessings on God, he wanted to take his listeners, his weary, maybe downtrodden listeners who were sad, he wanted to bring them all the way back to their homeland, back to their earliest memories of worshiping God. I mean, how many times have you through your life remembered your early days? When things were new, they were fresh. You were at church every time the doors were open. Those are great memories. And Peter was bringing his people back to their homeland, to those memories. He wanted to take their focus off of themselves and onto God. And so Peter wanted to remind his readers of whom their hope is in. It's not our government, they didn't save us, it's not Trump. It's not Biden. It's not any of the systems or any of the freedoms of our nation that has saved us. It's not your money. It's not your job. It's not your education. It's not the amount of information you amass from the Internet. None of that is worthy of your hope. Peter said, it is the God, the Father of Jesus Christ who we can hope in. And when I shared what Peter said about, then I shared about what Peter said, why we should hope in God. And that it is by God's great mercy that God has caused us to be born again. And with the awesome gift of salvation comes also the promise of our resurrection. Amen? Yes. All of these promises they give us a living hope. A living hope is one that grows and it increases because it's alive. And then I shared about how even though we may not be experiencing true biblical suffering, you know, like we're fearing for our lives because of our profession of faith, we, we may not experience that in the West, but we have two big hope stealers that we face in the Western world. And I said there was disappointment and discouragement. Those disappointments and discouragements that creep up in our life, that affect us, best way we can identify them is that they usually show up in the form of lies that we believe. 
Last week I shared some of my personal lies, you know, seven years ago that bred uh, great discouragement in my life. But I also shared that the way that we fix that is by believing truth, believing promises that come from God. If you're lacking hope, it usually means you believe a lie. Francis Frangipan, in his book, The Three Battlegrounds, talks about, he says, any place in your life that is not glowing with hope is a stronghold of the enemy. Any place in your life that is not shining and gleaming with hope, it is a stronghold of the enemy. And so we need God's promises. We need God's truth so that we can replace those lies and get our hope growing again. You know, and I had asked God, I shared that I had asked God if there was anything I could truly be hopeless about. And if you remember, he told me that I can be hopeless about anything that he's hopeless about. And so I ended my message by walking us through how to deal with lies and get truth so our hope can grow. So that's kind of the recap from last week. Now, today, I want to continue talking about this same topic of living hope. And I want to look at what else uh, Peter was saying to his readers concerning this topic. And so before we move into verse 4, I had another thought about why why Peter began uh, his letter of hope by pronouncing a blessing on God. This is just my own imagination. This is no, there's no Bible for this, so take it or leave it. But I, I just, I like to put myself in people's shoes and, and feel what they felt and experience what they experienced, especially in the Bible. I, I, I just, I'd like to be there. And I just, I imagine that Peter came about as close to hopelessness as any person could. I mean, I want you to think about it. Peter lived with Jesus intimately for three and a half years. As a matter of fact, God gave Peter a very special revelation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Remember that? Who do do they say I am? Well, Peter, who do you... Who do you say I am? And you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And he goes, Jesus says, Flesh and blood did not show this to you, but my Father did. So Peter got, you know, the big one. <laughs> he got the, the big A on the test. And then on the night that it mattered the most, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. Think about it. The guy who knew him and saw him bigger and better than anyone claims to not know him at all. And on that night that Jesus was arrested and Peter's milling around, people are asking him, hey, you're with him. You know him? No, I don't know him. Until that third denial Says I, he calls a curse down on himself. I don't know him. And Jesus looks at him after it happened. And then Jesus never gets another chance to make it right. 
fact, he's got to endure watching Jesus die on the cross, knowing that Jesus heard and saw him deny him. He has to look at him, die, knowing, I forsake you. No, I don't know you. I said that. And so imagine the hopeless feeling that the Messiah is dead. And the last thing he heard from me was, I don't know you. Imagine if that was the last thing you said to a, a dying friend or a relative. That's hopeless. It's as hopeless as I can imagine. So from Peter's point of view, he denied the Messiah. And Jesus' last memory of Peter was betrayal. So imagine when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And he deliberately restores Peter out of his shame. Imagine the immense amount of hope that came rushing back into his heart, knowing that he was finally reconciled back to his Messiah. No wonder he begins this letter to these hopeless readers with praise and blessing. Because he's like, listen, you're hopeless. I know what hopeless feels like, but praise God for the resurrection of Jesus. That I, Peter, was able to make things right with him. I was given the opportunity to restore my relationship. And not only that, I get to be resurrected with him. Peter got a second chance that no one ever gets with the loved one who passed away. So he is full of praise and hope. And I love that. Amen. Okay. So let's, let's read. Back to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So again, Peter tells us whom our hope is in, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He then tells us why we have a living hope. Because of God's mercy, we've been born again. And then in verse 4, he shifts from the one we hope in to what we hope for. See, the hope of verse 3 is now described in verse 4 as an inheritance. Everyone say inheritance. inheritance. Now, the word inheritance, uh, the Greek word is translated kleronomia. Yes, I think that's right. Kleronomia. I want to say it fast, but I can't. Kleronomia. Anyway. So that's the Greek word that Peter uses for the word inheritance. Now, that same word is used in the Septuagint. Now, Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay? So it's, got, it's all in Greek, but it's the Hebrew Old Testament in Greek. And so that same word, kleronomia, is also used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament to describe the inheritance to which the Jews look forward to in the promised land, in Canaan. 
And we know that God gave the land of Canaan to his people as an inheritance. First, God, uh, he had promised it to Abraham. He then promises it to his children. And so this word frequently shows up in the books of Numbers and the book of uh, Deuteronomy, which describe the future allotment of the promised land to the tribes. And then in the book of Joshua, we know that this allotment gets carried out. That's when they go in, they take the land, Joshua leads them in, and they get the inheritance. So Peter's using language of inheritance to get their attention in a way that they totally get. And the similarities between them and us, I think, are really very evident. While ancient Israel had wandered in the wilderness, they were sustained by a promise of their inheritance, right? I mean, we'll go through a lot of hard stuff if we know there's a payoff at the end. We'll, we'll hike miles, we'll do push-ups, we'll, you know, we know there's a, if we're, we're working towards a goal, we're going somewhere. And so Israel, they were wandering in the desert, and they kept wandering because they had a promise of an inheritance. They kept going. They kept moving forward. They didn't quit because their inheritance was coming. And so, like Israel in the wilderness, we, as New Testament people of God, we're also aliens and pilgrims in this world. Which means we are making our way through a world that is becoming more and more hostile. And we do this because we hold the title to the inheritance that God has given us. See, our hope is strong because nothing can happen to our inheritance. I mean, I want you to just, I'm going to list some ways that the Bible describes our inheritance. Calls it the promised land. God himself is our inheritance. Eternal life is our inheritance. The earth will be our inheritance. The kingdom of God is our inheritance. Our glory with Christ is our inheritance. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is our inheritance. It's a reward. Our very salvation is our inheritance. Our inheritance is eternal. It's a blessing. Even the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is a part of our inheritance. And so Peter also, he wants to describe this inheritance that our hope is tied to. He wants to, to also add to all of this truth that we have in the scripture. He wants to hear, he wants us to know what else, how, to, how else can we understand this inheritance. And so... In trying to describe this enormous, glorious, unfathomable inheritance, Peter is left with only being able to tell us what it is not. Have you ever tried to explain something that words could not fully describe? That's where Peter is. And so in verse 4, he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter, just like the Apostle John, who 
also struggles to describe the new heaven and new earth in the book of Revelation. Peter can only tell us and his readers, he can only talk about our hope by telling us what it's not. And so he uses three Greek words that begin with the same letter and they end with the same syllable. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable is the Greek word aphatharton. Undefiled is amianton. And unfading is amaranton. So they all begin with A and end in ton. So he's, you know, he, he likes alliteration too, right? Now, in English, imperishable means something that's not to able to be destroyed. Wait, are we not clicking through here? I think we're dead. Can you go to the next slide? There you go, there's the Greek words. Next one. There it is. So, in English, imperishable means not able to be destroyed. Undefiled means not polluted. And unfading means not subject to decay. So, First Peter says that this beautiful, glorious inheritance isn't perishable. And he uses this word to contrast it against uh, the inheritance of land that Israel gained. So again, back in ancient Israel, they, when you know, Joshua takes them in, they take the land. After they had taken possession of their inheritance, this land... There were so many times that their land was ravaged and destroyed by invading armies. Even though it was their inheritance, it was open to destruction. So Peter's trying to get their attention and ours as well by saying he wants us to know that this inheritance that's waiting for you, that's coming, it is nothing like the first inheritance. Nothing's going to destroy this thing. Nothing can get to it. And we even know through the prophet Isaiah that even uh, when it comes to the earth and the inheritance that Israel received, even Isaiah talks about how it will all be taken away. It says in 24.3, it says, The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. Again, in the Septuagint version of Isaiah, which again is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word stem for laid waste and wither is the same word that Peter's using in his scripture, in his passage in verse 4. But Peter's using it in the negative form, meaning an imperishable. We know the world's going to be destroyed, but our inheritance... It's indestructible. Our inheritance, like God, like God's word, like the crowns that we will be awarded, it is not subject to decay. Nothing's going to be able to destroy it. And guess what else? We're going to get a brand new body. Yeah. Hallelujah for that one. It's going to match. It's tailor-made for this new home and this amazing inheritance. We get all the upgrades. 
All of them. There's no extra cost hidden behind. All you had to do was die. So Peter says our inheritance is first, it's imperishable. And the next thing he says is that it's undefiled. We also know from Scripture, sadly, that Israel failed to heed the words of Moses and they defiled the land that the Lord had given them as an inheritance. In Jeremiah 2.7, it talks about it. It says, and I, this is the Lord speaking, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Now, from our vantage point, I think it's really hard to even imagine a world undefiled by sin. A world that lacks alarms, locks, uh, cities where theft, vandalism, murder are obsolete. A world where men and women and children experience no abuse. There's no need for jails. There's no need for police. There's no sin at all. I can't even imagine that. This present world we live in, it is fallen and it is defiled. Now let's look inside. Because even in our own hearts, we're corrupt and deceitful. Our hands are stained with the sin of pride and selfishness. It's all messed up. Peter tells us, your inheritance, it's unlike this world we're living in. It's unlike the world we know. You know, in the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse as to why this is and how this can be. It says in Revelation 5, um, John shows, he's shown a picture uh, of a vision of our future home where there is no one worthy to take the scrolls of God's good plan for our inheritance and bring it to completion. There's no one worthy. And in fact, it was so discouraging that the word tells us that John wept over humanity's universal defilement. Humanity's unworthiness. But then, one man comes forward. And it's none other than Jesus. The Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes to the rescue of a polluted, defiled, and unworthy world. Jesus alone is pure. His character alone, it is spotless and it is without blemish. Jesus, the undefiled. <laughs> Let's write a song about that. You're undefiled and we love you. Da, da, da. <laughs> Through him alone, we are able to enter into God's presence and receive as an inheritance 
that Peter's talking about. Peter says it's undefiled, this thing, this inheritance that I can't even put words to. And this inheritance, it's going to remain absolutely pure with not the slightest hint of pollution from sin. It will be pristine. It will have no stain. It will have no blemish, just like Christ. It will not be morally compromised. It will not be sinfully polluted. It will be unlike anything we've ever known. Don't you just love it when you put on your favorite shirt or dress or pants and then you get a little something? Oh, man. Makes me psycho. (laughs) And I don't know if it's because I'm getting sloppier as I get older, but it's happening more and more in my life. (laughs) I'm like, is this a hand-to-eye coordination problem I'm getting here? Because I don't know how I keep doing this. I get blemished. My beautiful shirt. It's got red sauce right there. I hate it. Sin gets on us too. But this inheritance that's coming, you're never going to get any dribble on it. Never, never, never. It is going to be undefiled. And then thirdly, Peter says that our inheritance is unfading. In other words, it won't wither or dry up. It will never lose its glory or freshness. Now, going again back to our comparison of Israel's inheritance of the land of Canaan, we know that it was destroyed by invaders and it was defiled by its inhabitants. We also know that it was dried up with drought from God's judgment. And again, Jeremiah talks about this. He says, For the land is full of adulterers, Because of the curse, the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. Isaiah also reflects on these judgments of God that caused land and its inhabitants to wither like grass. And he says this in chapter 40, verse 8. He says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, Peter even quotes Isaiah, this passage, in 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, 23, if you catch it. Israel's natural inheritance faded away. I want you to think for a moment about your own life. The easiest way uh, to understand how things fade and lose their glory, I think, is with our children. Yeah, you don't know what I'm getting ready to say. <laughs> You're like, Ooh, what's he going to say about our kids? I cannot tell you how many times one of my kids gets close to a birthday or Christmas and have suddenly found a toy or object that they cannot go on living without. <laughs> all right? And it's all I hear. For months sometimes. And then the special day comes, and a grandparent who overheard this does the unthinkable. (laughs) 
and they buy them this godforsaken overpriced piece of plastic. <laughs> right? And then you watch your child as they have an out-of-body experience <laughs> when they unwrap this bloated gift. They scream, they cry tears of joy, they hug it, they play with it, they take it to bed and sleep with it. The world is a beautiful place again for these little ones. And then two months later, what happens? That precious piece of plastic is now in the corner collecting dust. And eventually gets thrown on the heaping pile of forgotten toys. Its glory has dried up. And it has faded away. And we know it's true. In fact, we as adults, we're no different. It's just our toys are even more overpriced. <laughs> you know, we just have to have the new phone. Oh, got to get it. It's so awesome. Right? You get that phone, you open it up, you know, you stand in awe because, you know, it's a color I've never seen on a phone before. <laughs> oh, 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 it's green. Who's seen green on a phone before? It's fast. Look how fast it is. Oh, my gosh, it's so fast. It's shiny. Oh, the camera, it's so awesome. <laughs> right? It's exactly accurate. Don't make me put pictures up here because I will do it. We're over duck face. Can we please be over duck lips? Uh -uh. It's so 2000s. Right? It's just the most amazing. <laughs> I'm crying. I got the iPhone, whatever, 13 now. Look at the apps. Look at all the cool stuff it can do. I don't know how to work it, but look, it's all there. It's possible. And then two months later, you're tossing it in your purse. You're flicking it onto the table. You're dropping it every 15 minutes until, like all your phones before, you crack the screen. <laughs> you know that's true, too. And now guess what? It's just a phone. Its glory has dried up. It's faded away. Same thing with the new car. Yeah? You love it? Oh, this is it. Look, it's so, so fast. It's got all these features. Oh, I can do Bluetooth. Oh, it's peppy. It smells new, right? I love the wheels. Oh, this thing's got sunroof. Oh, my gosh, this is the best thing ever. And then in six months, becomes your personal garbage receptacle. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at you, ladies. There's trash in places you couldn't find if you actually built the thing yourself. French fries are permanently mashed into the carpet. It has the collective smell of your entire family's body odor mixed with a rotting apple core, uh, partially eaten sucker, and some chicken nuggets that are hidden away for a snack later. Between the seats. We can't find the smell, but it's back here somewhere. And so your precious 
new vehicle, your $25,000, $35,000, $45,000 car is now a $25,000 trash can. <laughs> yeah. The glory has dried up and it has faded away. It happens with your new house. It happens with your new clothes, your new jewelry, your new tools, your new gadgets. Everything in this world dries up and fades away. And you know where the saddest place this happens? Is in our relationships. I mean, think about as a young couple, they meet, they fall in love, they can't get enough of each other, decide that marriage is the only necessary next step. They get married, they go off to a honeymoon, and every dream is finally fulfilled. Until you leave your underwear on the floor for six months straight. <laughs> or you don't put the toilet paper on the holder correctly. Yeah. Guess what happens? The glory dries up and fades away. And listen, unless we are proactive to keep the fire alive, the early glory of that marriage can dry up to the point that we're done just being roommates and we can no longer stand each other. And we know where that heads. Off to divorce court. Because the glory has dried, it's died, and now we're looking for a new shiny person to make us happy again. So the sad reality is we gradually become this accustomed to things and we take them for granted. We quickly lose interest in what seemed so exciting at first. Even great paintings and works of art fade and people spend huge amounts of money to restore them and bring them back to their original glory, the get the colors to pop again. Everything in this life fades. Our health fades. Our possessions fade. The land of Canaan faded for Israel. But not so with our inheritance. Our hope is very different. When we think about our inheritance, you know, I think sometimes we, we think about this inheritance and it's like this vague, ethereal you know, shadowy existence. But Peter tells us that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, this world is the one that is going to be the foggy and unreal one. You know, if you're into C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Last Battle, he has Aslan referring to what we call real life as the shadow lands. It's like a dream compared to the reality of glory that's coming. And what did Isaiah said? He said, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. We have hope because our inheritance is unfading. 
It's never going to wear out. It's never going to dry up. It's never going to get boring for us. It will never lose its freshness. We will never stop being amazed by it. I mean, it won't be like wonderful to start with, only for the magic to wear off. Our hope is tied to an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. Peter says again in verse 4, he says, this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. So again, let me ask you, have you ever had something very precious or valuable that someone wanted to borrow? I don't know if you're like me, but do you ask them the questions like, you know, where are you going to keep it? Will you leave it in the yard? Uh, are your kids going to have access to it? Are you going to put it back in its box, its case, its bag when you're done using it? Are you going to use it properly? Will you put it away so it's not going to get stolen or abused by someone else? See, special things require special care. One thing people used to do many years ago was uh, they would rent a safe deposit box at the bank. You can still do it. But people would put their expensive jewelry in them sometimes. Uh, they would put important documents in them, uh, maybe rare collectives, collectibles, diamonds, clues to hidden treasures, <laughs> things of great value and importance. Peter says our inheritance is so special, so valuable, so important that it's being kept safe in heaven for you. You know, the apostle Peter or Paul says the same thing in Colossians. He says, we thank we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4.8, uh, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And this absolutely should remind us of the words of Jesus. Matthew 6, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal now again peter is making this contrast this subtle contrast uh, to the original inheritance of israel right the inheritance of the land of Canaan, it was a glorious inheritance, but they were not able to keep it. It was stolen and destroyed, and they were eventually taken into captivity into Babylon. And so his readers, Peter's readers, uh, understood this, uh, the history of what was lost. And so Peter also knows uh, what his readers are living under right now. 
You see, as Christians living in these hostile Roman provinces, they lived under the constant threat of death, of sexual assault, of torture. Anything they held dear and precious could be taken from them. Maybe they had had some treasured item, you know, a prized goat or something, you know, a family heirloom. And in a split second, it could be taken from them. It could be ripped out of their hands. Even their children could be ripped out of their hands. Living under that kind of fear and oppression has a way of really stealing hope. But Peter is increasing their hope by telling them that this thing, your inheritance, it can never be taken away from you. It's stored and it is protected in heaven by God himself. That is a glorious promise to build build up our hope. You know, in some ways, I know we too can experience loss. We may not live under the fear of death or torture, um, but the pain of watching our health or the health of a loved one decline is still a loss. When we lose a job, or worse yet, even a dream job, it's a very painful loss. Everything in this life can be lost. But one thing can never be lost. It's our inheritance in heaven. And Peter says, praise God. We have a living hope that is tied to a glorious inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, protected in heaven by God himself. Someone say amen. Since we know this is true, I want you to just close your eyes for a moment. I want you to ask yourself a question. Several questions. I want you to ask yourself, how am I living to invest in this inheritance? Does my life really look like I am preparing for this inheritance? Am I truly living for the real world that is to come? Or are we just living for the shadow lands? Have I fully given myself to loving deeply? Serving sacrificially. Speaking truthfully. Living holy. And sharing the gospel. Have I fully devoted myself to a Bible-centered life where I disciple myself, my children, and others? See, these things are the things that Jesus spoke of when he said, store up treasures 
I want you to just repeat after me. Keep your eyes closed. Lord, I just want you to say, my heart is full of hope. It is a safety net. When things don't go as planned, I know I will thrive. Because God has good things in store for me. Amen. Our living hope is pointing us to a heavenly inheritance. We can't waste our lives on this world. We can't waste our lives on the treasures that will fade away. We have to invest in eternity where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 